Our Father in heaven, we do thank you that you are a merciful and loving God. Lord, we recognize like Adam and Eve that we have rebelled against you and deserve to die today. But in your grace, you have so arranged things to wake us up, to call us back to you, uh, to respond in repentance, and that we can come back to you. And that by the work you're doing through your Son and through your Holy Spirit, that we can be restored to fellowship with you and, in fact, enjoy this life. Lord, I pray that you would guide us as we look at your word this morning, that we would hear your ideas and not ours. And I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In Ecclesiastes, it just starts out asking this question. Chapter 1, first three verses, it says, The words of the preacher, your Bible might say teacher, that's kind of their attempt to translate the title of the book, Ecclesiastes. In Hebrew, it's Koheleth. The Greek translation is Ecclesiastes. That's just what it means, the speaker, the assembly, or the teacher. Words of the preacher, that's how the writer refers to himself. The words of the preacher, the son of the David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Now, verse 3, what advantage does man have in all his work which he does under the sun? He's going to ask that same question again in chapter 3, verse 9. What profit is there? That's the same Hebrew word, actually. What profit is there to the worker from that in which he toils? Okay, life is hard, so this Hebrew word, Yithrona, gets translated different ways in different New English New Testaments. What profit is there? What value? What do we get out of it? Um, let's see, I listed some of the different ways it gets done. What gain is there? What, what do I have to show for it? What do we get out of it? Life's hard, and what do we get out of it? Well, he's going to answer that question um, throughout the book several times. Two particular places he answers. Um, in chapter 3, right after he asks the question, what benefit is there? Uh, I'm going to jump to the answer, and then this message is going to be him explaining this answer. I've seen the task which God has given the sons of men with which to occupy themselves. He's made everything appropriate in its time. He's also set eternity in their heart, yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from beginning even to end. I know that there's nothing better for them than to re- for people than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor, it is the gift of God. In this essay, and it's not very long, it's just six and a half pages. In this essay, he's going to explain how is it that living in a life that in fact is frustrating and painful, how is it that we can have enjoyment and contentment uh, living with the Lord? And he's going to explain that. So... The way this book is arranged, uh, what you'll see in the, the little insert in your bulletin, is it's kind of like a song that has two different choruses. And the writer is going to alternate between the two different choruses. And between the choruses are where the verses are where he explains what he means by the chorus. And the two choruses are, the first one is people are most familiar with, It's in there seven places, and it's listed where it's in there. Is he's going to say, and again, there's no telling how your Bible translates it, but he's going to say, 
that all is like a breath. Your Bible may say futility or vanity or meaningless or pointless. Life is like a breath and like chasing after wind. And he's going to say that seven times, and we'll come back and explain, look at what he means by that. Um, And he's going to talk about his experience, and when he looks at life from a human standpoint, and he's going to give lots of examples, that in fact life is unpredictable, it's uncontrollable, it's short, it's painful, it's unfair. He goes and goes and goes and gives examples. And his emotional response to that, when he just looks at it from the world's point of view, is he's going to talk about grief, hating life, despair, sleepless nights, tears, vexation, sickness, anger. He's going to go on and on about that. Then he's going to alternate with the other chorus, which sounds just the opposite. He's going to say that he recommends... um, Read in 2.24. This is the other chorus. And again, it's, uh, the answer to the question is, is also this chorus. Verse 24 of chapter 2. There's nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. This also I've seen that it is from the hand of God. He's going to tell us that it is possible to enjoy life with the Lord um, as we uh, focus on the fact that God is in control and has a plan and He does care. And now His emotional response becomes one of contentment, enjoying life, happiness, has a cheerful heart, um, and we'll see some more of that now. So He's going to alternate going back and forth. He's going to talk about what life looks like from the human standpoint in His emotional response of frustration and then he's going to go back and say, but you know what? God's got it. I can relax. And I can enjoy the pleasant things God gives me. Uh, this happens a lot in Scripture. When you think about Psalms, isn't that the way a lot of Psalms are written? Uh, you think of all the Psalms where David starts talking about um, he's either afraid or he's angry. There's a situation that he's, he's all wrought up about. But what does he do? He reminds himself, God's in control. I can relax in Him and praise Him. And that's what his son, Solomon, who most of us think that's probably who wrote this book, that's what he's going to do. He's going to go back and forth. So let's look a little bit more at this first part, uh, this first refrain, or I'm sorry, the, the first chorus about life being like a breath and chasing after wind. Let's look at some of the examples of him describing what life is like in this world and how he ends up evaluating it. We'll just look at a few examples because these are easy to see. These are the kind of things that most people think of when they read Ecclesiastes. They think, I've actually, I think, read in a book one time, Solomon wrote this when he was a grumpy old man. Uh, I would challenge that. I would challenge that evaluation of the book. What he's being is realistic. Let's look at uh, in chapter 2 just as an example. Chapter 2, let's start in verse 12. He said, I turn to consider wisdom, madness, and folly. 
For what will man do who will come after the king except what's already been done? And I saw that wisdom, my Bible says, excels folly as light excels darkness. This is that same word, profit. What profit is there? What do we get out of it? What do you get out of being wise? And he says, wisdom is more profitable than than being foolish. Verse 14, the wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet... And yet I know that one fate befalls them both. And I said to myself, the fate of the fool, it's the same that's going to befall me. So why have I been extremely wise? What benefit is there to applying wisdom? We're both going to die. Why bother? So I said to myself, this too is, the Hebrew word is hevel, it's a breath. Your Bible probably says something like vanity or futility. Verse 16, for there's no lasting remembrance of the wise man as with a fool, and as much as in the coming days all will be forgotten, how the wise man and, um, and the fool alike die. So I hated life, for the work which had been done under the sun was grievous to me, because everything is like a breath and striving after wind. Throughout the book, he gives examples of that. Uh, in chapter 4, he talks about, I looked again at all, uh, verse 1, I looked again at all the acts of oppression which were being done under the sun. And behold, I saw the tears of the oppressed, that they had no one to comfort them. And on the side of their oppressors was power, but they had no one to comfort them. So I congratulated the dead who are already dead more than the living are still living. Better off than both of them is the one who's never existed who's never seen the evil activity that is under the sun. You hear what he's saying? It'd be better to never have lived than have to live in this world. I've seen every labor and every skill which is done is a result of rivalry between man and his neighbor. This too, and again, here's this chorus, this too is like a breath in striving after wind. I want to talk a minute about the way this is worded and the way it's translated. Um, I have a relationship with the book of Ecclesiastes, kind of like Terry uh, Keith does with the book of Job. And that is, he loves the book of Job and feels like it's widely misunderstood. And that's the way I feel about Ecclesiastes. I've, I think I've studied Ecclesiastes more than any other book in the Bible. And uh, one of the things that we want to be careful about is this little refrain, everything is like breath and chasing after wind, because it might steer our thinking the wrong direction. This word that's translated in your Bible probably vanity or futility or meaningless or pointless, it's the Hebrew word hevel, and literally it means breath or vapor. It's used about 70 times in the Old Testament. It's hardly ever used literally. It's usually used figuratively to represent something else. But let's think about what a breath or vapor is like. Think about your breath. And the easiest way to do it is just picture this afternoon you go home and you open your freezer door, stick your face in there and go, and you can see that vapor. And think about what is that like? What is that like? How long does it last? Not very long. Can you grab hold of it and make it do what you want it to do? You know, we have an expression in our language about we just need to get a handle on something, get a handle on life. Well, Solomon's going to say, you can't because it's like, oh. Also, you don't know what it's going to do. You can't predict it. Other than the fact that it's short, you don't know, is it going to go there? Is it going to go there? Is it going to go here? We don't know. 
What he's going to say over and over is basically he's saying that about life. It is short. It's, it's perplexing. We can't really grab hold of it and make it do what we want it to do. I'm a little um, reluctant to translate it as meaningless or pointless, and here's why. And this is why it can be confusing if you read it uh, and you don't understand how he's using the word. There are going to be several times in Ecclesiastes when... The writer is going to describe God's work as being like a breath. And I don't think the writer is saying that what God does is pointless and meaningless. When he talks about the food we have and our work and prosperity, um, he's not that God gives us that. It's not pointless. Now, I will say that there's a big difference between Job and Ecclesiastes, and it's this that in the early part of Job, Job is standing strong in his faith and makes some tremendous um, statements of faith about who he thinks God is and what he's like. But you recall as Job's trial went on and on and he got worn down and as his well-meaning friends were giving him bad counsel and basically grinding salt in the wound, Job got to struggle more and more, and he eventually ends up saying things and making accusations against God that are untrue. And God calls him on it. And Job repents and comes back to, yes, God does care. I think in Ecclesiastes we don't see that. I think that... um, throughout this book that the teacher is going to say some things that on the surface may sound strange if we don't understand where he's coming from. But I don't get the impression in Ecclesiastes that there's ever a point where the Lord thinks that the statements he's making are wrong. I think they're correct. We just don't understand what he's saying or we don't like what he says. I remember my first, one of my first pastors said that the Bible's not really that hard to understand. It's just hard to swallow. And uh, there's some truth to that. Let me give a couple of examples. In chapter 1, let's start reading in verse 12. He said, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. He's called himself the son of David. That's why he thinks probably Solomon. I set my mind to seek and explore by wisdom concerning all that's been done under the sun. I'm going to figure life out. It's a grievous task which... Who has given to the sons of men? Who gave a grievous task to men? Oh. It's a grievous task God has given to the sons of men to be afflicted with. Stick that in your pipe and smoke it. For you young people, for us old timers, that means think about it. I realize how flippant that sounds. Think about it. I've seen all the works that have been done under the sun, and behold, all is like a breath in striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened, and what is lacking cannot be counted. Later on, he's going to tell us who it is that made things crooked. So here he's talking about what God has done that can make life difficult and things in life are crooked and bent. And he's going to say that is like a breath in striving after wind. 
And I'm, I would like to suggest to you as you read this to think more in terms of he is saying that life is like that vapor, that it's unpredictable. We can't always get hold of it and make it do what we want it to do. It's perplexing. Often we don't know why things are happening. He's not saying that it's meaningless or pointless. I'd also like to look at... Um, Chapter 2, verse 24. This is where both choruses occur close together, and he's going to connect them. Chapter 2, verse 24. There's nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. If all you do is read that out of context, you're going to think what? Eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow you die. That's not what he's saying. Look. This also I have seen, that it is from the hand of God. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without Him? For to a person who is good in his sight, he's given wisdom and knowledge and joy, while to the sinner he's given the task of gathering and collecting so that he may give to one who is good in God's sight. This too is a breath and striving after wind. As we're going to see a little later on, he's going to get more specific. But as you see, what he's saying here is that a lot of times we don't know why God does what he does. And we can't figure it out. That's the point he's making about life. Not that life is pointless and meaningless. Only that we have trouble understanding it. Now, I'd like to challenge you as you read through this. To read carefully, rather than just thinking that Solomon, later in life, he became a curmudgeon. That's my new favorite word. I learned that word just a few years ago because I'm a curmudgeon. You know what a curmudgeon is? It's a grumpy old man. Look it up. Anyway, they think, well, Solomon's just being a curmudgeon. But read carefully what it is that he's actually upset about. Uh, Yes, he describes difficult situations in life. But what he's actually upset about when you read it is the fact that it seems like when he tries to apply wisdom that it often doesn't work. That what he's dealing with is frustration. A lot of, you look at a lot of commentaries and devotionals and they'll say that, uh, well Solomon just decided that life just filled with entertainment was unfulfilling. Well I think Solomon would agree with you, but that's not the point he's making in the book. The point he's making in the book is that when I try to apply wisdom, when I try to figure things out, I can't. When I try to figure out why everything falls apart, and I I try to apply wisdom, and my life still turns out to be a train wreck, what is up with that? Solomon ends up saying in chapter 1, Verse 18, now this is the wisest man ever lived, according to the Lord himself. Chapter 1, verse 18, he says that in much wisdom, Solomon wrote Proverbs. Was was Solomon a fan of wisdom? Yeah. In much wisdom there is much grief. And increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. 
He's going to say several times in here that if you're really wise and you actually do examine life and see how it works, you know what you're going to discover? It's worse than you thought. Because life is full of corruption and injustice. Life is full of things going wrong. Well, what is his recommendation? Since life is like that, what does the teacher recommend that we do? And his recommendation is exactly the opposite of what you would expect. His response is, enjoy life. Be content. See life as pleasant. Enjoy food and drink uh, when you have the opportunity. And we're going to look here. What he does is, again, he's going to remind us that God is in control and has a plan and he is just, he does act, he will make things right, and now his emotional response has changed. Before, when he just looked from the world's point of view, his emotional response is what? Grief, hate life, despair, sleepless nights, tears, vexation, sickness, anger. I'm a curmudgeon. I understand all of those. He's saying now his emotional response is contentment, enjoy life, happiness, cheerful heart. I want to think about emotional responses to things. And this, the scriptures challenge me here, and Ecclesiastes has always been a challenge to me. He's going to challenge our emotional response to things, whether we're going to be feel vexation and anger or we're going to feel contentment and enjoy life. I want to give an example. Uh, I'll use a sports example. Even though I'm a sports fan, I'm a guy, so I'll pretend I'm a sports guy. Um, we have a... People went to, who went to University of Texas here? Ah, nobody will admit it. There are several, <laughs> several people in the first service went to University of Texas. I'm an Aggie. I'm Aggie Ring. Um, I'm a two percenter for those who know what that means. But anyway, I went to A&M. But you imagine, okay, Joe Birch and I tease each other. He went to University of Texas. And uh, you can imagine he and I are watching the UT Aggie game together. And... Last play of the game, UT's in possession, four points ahead, and they fumble the ball. Aggies recover, score, Aggies win the game. So what are our responses? Well, I'm jumping up and down doing a victory dance, giving him... Joe, of course, is sick. He's spilled his Coke. You know, he's stomping around. He's mad. And it feels like those emotional responses, they feel like, there's something instantaneous that we have no control over, doesn't it? But is that true? Because that's exactly the same event. The same people dropped the ball. The same people picked it up. The same thing happened. And yet, I'm happy. He's sad. Why? Well, it's because my grandfather went to A&M. And I went to a uh, My father went to A&M. And his brothers went to A&M. And I went to A&M. And all my cousins went to A&M. And I spent several years down at A&M. So for all of these years, I developed this way of thinking that I'm an Aggie and Aggies should win if everything's working the way it's supposed to, and they should win. But Joe, having had the misfortune of going to the University of Texas, <laughs> spent years thinking of himself as a UT guy and conditioning himself. It's good when we win. It's bad when we lose. So here's the point. When we have an emotional response to something and it feels instantaneous 
and not something that we contrived. Is that true? It's something that we've developed over all of this time. We're conditioned and then suddenly it surfaces an emotional response. And what the writer of Ecclesiastes is going to do is he's going to challenge us like I might challenge Joe, that if he comes to recognize the error of his ways and were to transfer his allegiance to A&M, that over time his emotional response would eventually change. Um, Some of you guys that are big sports fans, you may have done that. At some point you had an allegiance to one particular professional team, and at some point you switched your allegiance to another team, and it it was painful and took time, didn't it? But, But you did that, and now you cheer for a different team. Well, I'm being flippant about that, but those are strong emotions, really, aren't they? I mean, you go to a soccer game in Europe, and there's riots, and people get killed. Where do those emotions come from? And that's what the writer's going to chart, uh, challenge us with. So let's look at how the writer encourages us to do that. And it all fundamentally comes down to one re- uh, thing. I'm going to give his, see there we have his reason, his reason why we can enjoy life and have contentment even in the face of hardship and frustration. And his reason is, is he is going to continually Remind himself of who God is and what God does. And that is going to change his thinking. And the main thing that he does is he's going to show us that God is in control and has a plan. But just as important as that, he's going to remind us that we are not supposed to be in control or know what's going to happen. God is in control, and we're not, but you know what? We're not supposed to be, and we're not supposed to be able to predict the future. We want to, but we don't. So let's look at it just a couple of places. And again, he goes back and forth throughout the book, going to one and then the other. And I just want to highlight a couple of them. In chapter 3, verse 1, these next few verses will sound very familiar to those of you that are old enough to have remembered hearing this as a pop song on the radio. The teacher says in verse uh, chapter 3, line 1, There's an appointed time for everything, and there's a time for every event under heaven, a time to give birth and a time to die. There's a time to plant and a time to uproot what is planted. There's a time to kill and there's a time to heal. There's a time to tear down and a time to build up. There's a time to weep and a time to laugh. And he goes on and on talking about these these um, polar issues, right or left. And you're thinking, well, what is the point of that? I can't remember that song. Somebody who can remember it after church, come tell me, what was the point in the song? I don't remember uh, back in the day. But what is the writer's point here? His point is not that you and I are supposed to figure out which is which and act accordingly or predict. His point here is that you and I don't know. You you and I don't know when is going to be the right time for either. Go on down to verse 9. This is where he again repeats the question. The whole question, life is hard. Why bother? Chapter 3, verse 9. 
What profit is there to the worker from that in which he toils? We're frustrated. We're trying to figure this out. And Verse 10, I've seen the task which God has given the sons of men with which to occupy themselves. In other words, what has God given us to do in life? He's made everything appropriate in its time. So God has marked when things should happen, the time that's appropriate for them. And he's also set eternity in people's heart. That is, we think about things like that. Um, I like Jack Wortman talking about when he's in Cambodia, talking about uh, talking to Buddhists and saying, cows don't look up at the stars and wonder at creation. <laughs> but God made us so that we do. God has worked. Um, he set eternity in our heart. And yet, look so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. Several times in this book, uh, the writer is going to say in several different ways that we cannot know what God is going to do tomorrow. That's in His hands. That's why the verse is at the top of your bulletin from Deuteronomy about the secret things belong to God. He has revealed to us what he thinks we need to know so that we can live in obedience and dependence to him. But there's a lot. He hadn't told us everything. He's told us what we needed to know. And that's what the writer here is saying. He's going to say that again in chapter 8. Um, my book's all map, all marked up with colored pencil because... Because he got, kind of goes around in circles and says the same thing different ways over and over, I just pick a color and use that color and I can follow the argument a little better. In chapter 8, verse 16, let's begin reading. Well, we'll back up to 15 because, again, this is where he gives the chorus, enjoy life. And then he's going to give us the reason, verse 15. Chapter 8, verse 15. So I commended pleasure. For there is nothing good for a man under the sun except to eat and to drink and to be merry, and this will stand by him in his toils throughout the days of his life, which God has given him under the sun. He acknowledges that life is hard, but go ahead and enjoy life. Now look at verse 16. When I gave my heart to know wisdom and to see the task which has been done on the earth, even though one should never sleep day or night, in other words, I, I worked on wisdom 24-7, and I saw every work of God. I concluded that man cannot discover the work which has been done under the sun. Even though man should seek laboriously, he will not discover. And though the wise man should say, I know, he cannot discover. This is, part, this is one of the hard-to-swallow parts. Um is that God is reminding us that He is in control and He knows what He's going to do. But not only do we not know, we're not supposed to. God has done that deliberately in order to, um, in order to humble us. And He's going to say that, we're going to come back to that where He's give more explanation about that. But the corollary to that is this. Um, God has made life frustrating because of our sin. That's why the scripture reading was from Genesis chapter 3, right? Adam and Eve rebelled against God, and he had said that if they did that, they would die in the day that they did it. 
But what actually happened is God sent them out of the garden and made life frustrating for them. He said, okay, you want to live without my direction and provision? You go out there and try it. See how it works. Um, That is what Paul talks about in Romans 8 when he says that God has subjected all of creation to futility uh, and all of creation is groaning, awaiting the restoration that will come through Christ. Well, that verse where, where Paul says all of creation is subjected to futility by God, that Greek word is the way the Greek translation translates this hevel, this vapor. It's the same word. Paul's talking about the same thing. God has made life frustrating on purpose in order to remind us that we're not in charge. Um, So the corollary to that, what I have down there, is when our plans do work out, that's a gift of God to be enjoyed. In chapter 3, verse 12, this is just a continuation of when he's talking about God has made things frustrating, uh, or he's made things appropriate in their time, but we don't know when those are. We don't know when there's going to be a birth and when there's going to be a death. Verse 12, I know that there's nothing better for them than to rejoice and do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor, it is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will remain forever. There's nothing to add to it. There's nothing to take from it. For God is so worked that men should fear him. That which has been already and that which will be has already been, for God seeks what has passed by. So he says, the fact that we live are living today and breathing is a gift from God. And if we do have enjoyable things, thank God for it and enjoy it. Because what we deserve is death. And God has made love frustrating, on the one hand frustrating to remind us of who we are and who he is. And at the same time, he does allow us to enjoy pleasant things. So, with that idea, the writer is now going to give several specific things that we need to think about. I just picked four of them here because they're just the Lord has particularly used them to encourage me. And I just put them in the order that they show up in the book. Uh, these are things, the specifically when we think about God is in control, these are specific things that the writer says you need to have these in your mind as you go through a difficult or frustrating life. And the first one is, know that pleasant times and hardship both come from God. Chapter 7, 13 and 14. This is another one of those... It's not really hard to understand. It's just hard to swallow. Chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. The teacher says, Consider the work of God, for who is able to straighten what He has bent. Remember in chapter 1, he's talking about life is bent. Who can straighten it? Now he's who bent it? He's talking about Genesis chapter 3. And what Paul talks about in Romans 8, the world being subjected to futility, God is the one who made things where they work. They don't work well. Consider the work of God. Who's able to straighten what he has bent? In the day of prosperity, be happy. Okay, that's easy. 
But in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man will not discover anything that will be after him. It reminds us of our limitation that we are creatures and not the Creator. When the Lord does give us a pleasant day, Carrie and I happen to just be in a pleasant stage in our life right now. We, uh, we're taking care of our older parents, but really our life is pretty cush right now. It's very pleasant, and we enjoy that, and we're thankful to the Lord for it. But not every stage in our life has been like that. In adversity, consider God has made one as well as the other. Um, Pastor Keith recently did a series on Job, and um, my marker fell out. Anyway, it's close. That's really how Job started out, isn't it? Job started out... Job started out strong. I get the first service and the second service mixed up. Did I already do this? No, thank you. Job started out strong. When he hit adversity, when he lost uh, not only his property, which that's no big deal, but he lost all his children. I have adult children. Job lost all of them in one day. But Job fell to the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, the Lord's taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Then he lost his health. And I don't mean he sort of lost his health. He was as good as dead. People wouldn't even go near him. He was so sick. Even his wife said, You still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But Job said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Now we see later on in the book as he gets bad advice, uh, bad counsel from his well-meaning friends, and as the suffering goes on and on, Job is going to shift Gears, and he's going to make some accusations against God um, that are untrue, and God's going to call him on it, and he will later repent. But we see here this whole idea of knowing that pleasant times and hardship both come from God is what we need to focus on where we don't just stay latched in on the hardship that we don't have, uh, hardship of that we face or things that we want that we don't have. Uh, I want to try to share this. I didn't. I didn't warn my wife and my mother-in-law that I was going to do this, but um, but I, I've shared it before. Um, my father-in-law passed away a month before I met Carrie, so I never met Bill. Uh, I met Carrie right after he had passed away, and kind of a funny story, when I met Carrie and then we got married, I thought that Ruby was old, which is funny because I am now more than 20 years older than she was when I first met her. But the significance of that is, is that when Bill passed away, Ruby was only 42, and she still had four girls at home. The youngest one was six, five. How old was Janet? Five. 
and um, and that was difficult. And you could imagine Ruby being so locked into her heartache and loss of Bill that she just simply forgets about the joy of her children and the life with them and ministering to them. I really appreciated uh, Tyler's devotion Friday night at the retreat this weekend. Part of his, uh, uh, a big part of his message had to do with just continuing to walk with and serve the Lord wherever he puts us, whether it was where we intended to be or not. And I loved his illustration of you're driving down the freeway, everything's going good, and all of a sudden something goes wrong, and you're flying off across the pasture, bouncing over things, and all you can think about is getting back on the highway where it's smooth. But what you've got to do is, right now, you're flying down the pasture in a car and you need to drive the car. <laughs> Be where you are, where God has put you, hardship or not, to be serving the Lord, to be honoring and trusting Him and giving what He's given you to do where you are now. Um, several years after Carrie and I were married, I remember her... <laughs> coming to me, and I've shared this before, so I hope this is all right. <laughs> I remember Carrie come to me. She'd been just with the Lord in the Scripture, and she was just <laughs> tears running down her cheeks. And she was saying, she was saying, all these years I always felt like Daddy died before his time. But she said, I think I can honestly now just sit at the Lord's feet and say, my daddy just died before we wanted it to. He died at just the right time. But you don't, you and I don't know when that will be. I don't know why I'm 63 and why Bill passed away in his face. I don't know. You don't know. Life is Havel. But that's not necessarily a bad thing. The Lord has done that to put us in a position where we have got to trust Him. And know that He does know what's coming. Well, that's related to the next one. In fact, it's the very next verses. That as we do this, He's going to tell us, the uh, teacher's going to tell us, diligently apply wisdom, but humbly accept the limits of our wisdom. Let's continue reading in chapter 7. It comes to verse 15. And He says, I've seen everything during my lifetime of Havel. A vapor. Again, it's helpful if you see that as being unpredictable and uncontrollable. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his wickedness. All right, there's times when it seems like things are backwards. It seems like the good die young and the wicked prosper. Verse 16, this is what I want to help you with. Do not be excessively righteous and do not be overly wise. Why should you ruin yourself? If we had four hours, I'd put the Hebrew up here and explain what's going on. But what he's saying is don't overestimate your righteousness and your wisdom. Don't overestimate your ability to be able to figure out why things have happened the way they are. Don't um, think that you can figure out why Bill passed away as young as he did and I'm living to be old. There are things that we don't know. 
if you try, he says, why should you ruin yourself or exasperate yourself? There'll be exasperation, um, um, and we will frustrate ourselves. That's what Solomon was talking about in chapter 1, that where uh, wisdom and knowledge grow, pain and grief increases because as we try to figure things out, it gets difficult. We'll just exasperate ourselves if we try to be, uh, try to figure everything else. On the other hand, figure everything out. On the other hand, verse 17, don't be excessively wicked and do not be a fool. Why should you die before your time? His point is, all right, we don't have enough wisdom to explain everything that happens in life. But don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. On the other hand, do apply the wisdom that you have. Don't do something stupid. Don't shoot yourself in the foot uh, and just make life miserable for yourself. So it says in verse 18, it's good that you grasp one thing and also not let go of the other. For the one who fears God comes forth with both of them. Both of what? One is acknowledging that I don't have the wisdom to figure out and control everything. But on the other hand, apply the wisdom that God has given us. I always use the illustration for this of driving. Uh, I can apply wisdom in trying to be wise when I drive. Uh, Be careful, be thoughtful, follow the rules that are good, not speed at night in the rain when I'm drunk. Uh, You know, follow the rules. But on the other hand, I don't have control over what other people on the road are doing. I've been in two car accidents in which the car I was in was totaled. And fortunately, I didn't get hurt badly in either one of them. Uh, Carrie and I have had two cars that have been totaled. And um, all of those accidents, the car that I was in, the driver was doing everything right. Um, Those were a total of three accidents. Two of them, uh, the driver was following the rules. In fact, there was nothing else they could have done and gotten rear-ended in total the car. Uh, I was in another accident where the guy I was riding with, we were commuting to seminary of all things, and a guy pulled out in front of us, completely totaled the car. In fact, I remember the police officer was there. He's looking at the car and looking at us and saying, you guys all right? You need to go to the hospital? We did what we could, but we can't control everything that happens to us. And that's one of the things that the writer's wanting to Apply to uh, uh, wanting us to remember. That's one of the things that James talks about. I was actually going to read this last week. Uh, in last week's sermon, it applies here too. When James says in chapter 4, he says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we'll go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. You don't know what your life is going to be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor. Does that sound familiar? You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. He doesn't tell you not to plan a business trip. He just says, have a little bit of humility about your ability to predict what's going to happen. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. This idea throughout the scripture is that we need to recognize that we should apply the wisdom that God gives us, but recognize the
a limitation. Next, believe that God always does right even when our observations indicate otherwise. I'm going to read that again. The writer challenges us to believe that God does what is right even when our observations seem to indicate the otherwise. Otherwise, We're going to look what he says in chapter 8, verse 10. And I think that this is one of the most powerful statements of faith in all of Scripture. Chapter 8, verse 10. He's going to describe all the injustice that he sees in life. So then I've seen the wicked buried, those who used to go in and out from the holy place, and they were soon forgotten in the city where they did thus. This too is a vapor. Uh, Actually, that sounds like justice. There are other places where he talks about the opposite, but we don't know when. Verse 11. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly, therefore the hearts of the sons of men among them are given fully to do evil. That applies not only to our children when they were little and now to our grandchildren, but us and adults. Verse 12. Here it is. Although a sinner does evil a hundred times and may lengthen his life, in other words, even when I look at life in a hundred times, I see injustice. Still, I know that it will be well for those who fear God, who fear Him openly. But it will not be well for the evil man, and he will not lengthen his days like a shadow, because he does not fear God. Throughout Ecclesiastes and throughout the Scriptures, that's uh, especially as you read through the historical books uh, in the Old Testament, that's part of what we're supposed to see in the story, is often in the heat of the moment, in the battle, it often looks like God and justice are losing. But as you continue to read, you find out that is not the case, that God is in fact marching to victory every day. And he is going to build his kingdom. And the writer of Ecclesiastes is encouraging us to remind ourselves of that as we see injustice in our world, whether it's trivial injustices about how people drive in traffic or at work or whether they're big injustices. Some of you that will be here have been here a long time will remember many, many years ago, this was before Terry was even here, there was a young single woman named Holly who was part of our fellowship, and she was murdered uh, alone at work at one night. And here we are, I don't know, 25, 30 years later, and as far as I know, unless I, I didn't hear about it, they've still never determined who did it or caught who did it. And, you know, that's not a small thing for her, for her family, for our congregation. But can we say with the writer of Ecclesiastes, I know that it will be well for Holly and for us, and it will not be well for him who did that. There's another one here that especially applies to me. We'll go to chapter 11. I actually marked the entire chapter of 11. We're not going to read all of it. I'll just read part of it. One of the things that can happen, at least to some of us, and This may only apply to some of you, but it certainly does to me. Life gets so frustrating and hard that it's really easy to want to throw in the towel. 
and just say, you know what, I'm not even going to try. And I tend to be that way anyway. Even when I was a little kid and tried to play baseball, you know, there's kids that they want to play shortstop or first base because that's where the action is. I wanted to be out in right field, and I was out there saying, don't hit it out here, don't hit it out here, because I figured if they hit it out here, I'll drop it. You know, I just I go through life being afraid I'm going to fail. And I just get paralyzed by that. It's kind of embarrassing to admit. Um, that's one of the things that made me made it hard for me to practice veterinary medicine. Every 15 minutes, another client would come in with another puzzle and think, I wonder if I'm going to fail on this one, you know. Well, then my wife and our family, we went to Papua New Guinea for all those years, and the program didn't pan out. Nothing like we expected. I think I shared this last week. So we came back, licking our wounds, went back to veterinary practice. I get a call. David, come over to Papua New Guinea and help us. It's a friend of mine, Ed. I said, Ed, <laughs> I tried that. It didn't work. Well, we don't know this time. Come on. Carrie and I talked about it. <laughs> Carrie said, you can't not go. you got to go. And the writer is going to tell us that. What he's going to tell us is it's easy for us to get paralyzed and not want to go ahead and move because we think we don't know how it's going to turn out. Chapter 11, line 1. This is so practical. Cast your bread on the surface of the waters. For you will find it after many days. Divide your portion to seven or even to eight, for you don't know what misfortune may occur on the earth. If the clouds are full, they pour out rain upon the earth. And where the tree falls toward the south or toward the north, whatever the, wherever the tree falls, there it lies. He who watches the wind will not sow. He who looks at the clouds will not reap. Just as you don't know the path of the wind and how bones are formed in the womb of the pregnant woman, so you don't know the activity of God who makes all things. In other words, uh, where's the, where are the Fortneys? You know, if they're worried about not being able to protect the weather, he's not going to plant corn. He's about to go up to Iowa and plant corn next month. And uh, he doesn't know whether there's going to be a drought and it won't grow or whether it's going to get too much rain during harvest and it's all going to rot in the field because he can't get in there and get it. But he's going to go plant. And if he gets a good crop, praise the Lord. And if he doesn't, well, all right, Lord, consider. So what do we do? What do we do? Verse 7. The light is pleasant, and it is good for the eyes to see the sun. Life is not, it is pleasant to live life. It's not all bad. Indeed, if a man should live many years, let him rejoice in them. And let him remember the days of darkness, for they will be many. Everything that is to come will be like a vapor. It'll, it'll be puzzling an enigma. Line 9. Rejoice, young man. He's talking to everybody, men and women both. During your childhood and let your heart be pleasant during the days of young manhood. And follow the impulses of your heart and the desires of your eyes. You remember, the Lord gave Adam and Eve a lot of freedom in the garden. There was only one restriction. And they kept looking at that restriction. But he gave them a lot of freedom. Eat what you want to eat. God gives us a lot of freedom, whether it's about our work, um, uh, about where we live, about hobbies, what we're going to eat. The Lord gives us a lot of freedom. The Lord says, if you want to do something, go do it. Just remember 
know that God will bring you to judgment for all these things. In other words, remember what the parameters are. You know, God's not just a mean guy with a whistle blowing his whistle if you cross the line. His instruction is meant to guide us in what's beneficial for us. It's a lot easier to think of God's rules as instruction and guidance than just the mean guy who won't let me have any fun. No, he's guiding us. So, line 10, and this is what we'll close with. It's an amazing thing. So, remove grief and anger from your heart and put away pain from your body. That's an amazing thing to me because what he's doing is he is giving a command about what we do with our emotional response to things. It's like me, again, I'm being facetious, me talking to Joe when he's upset about UT losing, of saying, Joe, put away your sadness. And that's what the writer is saying here. Paul does the same thing in Ephesians when he's talking about Christians with, uh, with anger and animosity and emotional things that we feel. He's saying, set those aside. Set those aside. He's actually giving us a command, and he's told us how to do that. And why do we do that? Because childhood and the prime of life are hevel. It's a vapor. Your Bible probably says something like fleeting or short. It's that same word. Um, actually, his final conclusion, the very last two verses in the book, chapter 12, verse 13 and 14. The conclusion, when all has been heard, and remember the question is, life is hard, then you die, so what's the point? Conclusion is, fear God and keep His commandments. Because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. The Lord knows life is hard because He's the one that made it that way, but that was a gracious work on His part to give us a chance to open our eyes and recognize that He is the Creator and He has provided a way of life. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you. We do thank you that you have shown us that that while life is hard, it's not because you're not there or because you failed, but because you have graciously arranged life in such a way that we recognize our limitation and we recognize our need for you. Lord, we thank you for your word that shows us that the world is like that because of rebellion. And Lord, we know each of us just like Adam and Eve have rebelled against your guidance and your care and your authority and deserve to die just as Adam and Eve deserve to die on the day they sinned. And yet you've provided a way, you've provided a way of forgiveness in life through your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray for any that are here this morning that they've never come to that point of recognizing that they need to depend on your grace and mercy and forgiveness for their sin that you give through your son Jesus who died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins and that you raised him at the right raised him from the dead and he's at your right hand and he is establishing his kingdom and everything will be straightened out at the proper time when he returns and justice will prevail over all lord we pray in his name amen